This is District Sentinel Radio, the newscast of record for the left. I am Sam Sachs. I am Sam Knight. We're broadcasting out of Pistown, Washington, D.C. Check out the website, <laughs> districtsentinel.com. Check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash districtsentinel. Hope uh, some of you subscribers out there are getting your t-shirts in the mail. If you do, send a picture or uh, post a picture of yourself in the in the Sentinel t-shirt on Twitter so we uh, know who you are. I'll make sure to follow back if I'm not already following you. In case anyone out there uh, relies on us as their sole news purveyor, um, we had some doubt on yesterday's show about the uh, Jeffrey Tubin incident, uh, whether or not he was indeed jerking it or just... I guess a more innocent explanation and turns out uh some of his colleagues have gone on the record to say yes he was indeed jerking it yesterday. <laughs> so uh, a necessary update there. It's important to make sure the record is accurate. Yeah, you were right all along Sam Knight uh you know I I tried to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um no need to do that though anymore. Just a sick sick dude. <laughs> All right, let's dive into it. It's Tuesday, October 20th, 2020. Here's the news. The Justice Department filed a lawsuit today against Google, alleging that the internet search giant is illegally maintaining a monopoly. DOJ officials announced the long-anticipated litigation, noting it was joined by 11 state attorneys general, mostly from states governed by Republicans, They're accusing Google of using exclusionary agreements in violation of antitrust laws. Specifically, they say that Google is forbidding the pre-installation of search devices on Android phones and making its own products not only default but undeletable. Google is also being accused of entering into long-term agreements with Apple that make Google searches the exclusive option on Apple's Safari browser. DOJ said this is part of a business strategy that generally involves recycling monopoly rents into financing agreements with other companies to, quote, buy preferential treatment for its search engine on devices, web browsers, and other search access points, creating a continuous and self-reinforcing cycle of monopolization, end of quote. The Wall Street Journal noted that a defeat for Google could mean a forced change in its business model to allow other companies to compete for its business. Google currently has control of between 80 and 90% of the search engine market. And not to go all Andy Rooney on this segment, but the quality of Google searches has noticeably declined over the years. The first few results now are always ads. You have to do special shit to share links you find on Google on iPhones. And uh, sometimes you search for stuff and it just doesn't come up because websites know how to game the algorithm. So they're really rubbing it in our faces. Yeah, yeah, I can confirm it sucks. Google is hoping that the judicial system will be sympathetic to its argument that it can't be a monopolist since it doesn't charge for most of its products and they could very well prevail. The dominant strain of thought in antitrust enforcement since the late Carter years has been, who cares if a company is a monopoly? as long as it doesn't abuse its price-making powers to screw consumers. This, of course, is totally indifferent to the impact 
of monopoly power on labor markets, which actually has its own name, monopsony. Monopoly means one seller. Monopsony means one buyer. You might recall how a few years ago, Google, Apple, Adobe, and Intel settled a lawsuit with the Justice Department for $415 million after the companies agreed to not hire each other's workers to keep their labor costs down. Today's lawsuit comes just weeks after House Democrats released a report urging federal regulators to consider breaking up Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon. It also comes at the urging of Attorney General William Barr, who, according to the New York Times, pushed for the suit to be filed before Election Day, which, fair enough. The Times noted that the legal battle will likely be drawn out for years and, quote, could set off a cascade of other antitrust lawsuits from state attorneys general. Google is also being investigated by state officials for its online advertising practices. When I say state officials, of course, I mean uh, for antitrust reasons. The importance for reactionaries of installing Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court was once again made clear on Monday when the high court decided not to take up a case that allows the state of Pennsylvania to extend the mail-in ballot deadline. Supremes didn't issue any sort of opinion. They were deadlocked 4-4 on the issue, meaning that for now, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision to allow the extension will go forward. Citing the pandemic, officials in the state announced they would allow any mail-in ballots postmarked by Election Day to be counted even if they were received after Election Day, all the way up until the following Friday. That's likely to result in tens of thousands of votes that would normally be tossed out, now being counted. So naturally, Republicans in the state flipped out, despite the fact that counting mail-in ballots received after November 3rd or after Election Day is fairly common practice when it comes to military and overseas voters. They took the case to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, claiming it was a constitutional violation, where they were defeated in a 5-2 ruling in September. That ruling also prohibited a request from the Trump campaign to dispatch poll watchers to voting centers in counties that they are not registered to vote. Despite conservatives currently holding a 5-3 majority on the U.S. Supreme Court, the body was deadlocked on taking up the issue with Chief Justice John Roberts declining to join with the conservative flank of Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh to take up the case. Reasonable to assume that the math changes with another arch-conservative on the court like Amy Coney Barrett should another challenge be brought contesting mail-in ballots closer to Election Day or after Election Day. Senate Judiciary Committee is expected to confirm Barrett on Thursday after which she will face a confirmation vote before the full Senate. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has committed to seating Barrett on the Supreme Court before Election Day, but the President and Republican Senators have talked openly about the need for a full nine justice. That would be an, a 5-3, sorry, that would be a 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court to settle any sort of Election Day disputes. During her confirmation hearing, Barrett refused to pledge to recuse herself from any cases involving the election. Finally, while I personally have mostly given up on the idea of pushing the Democratic Party to the left, 
I do recognize that there are a lot of folks out there who still think it's possible and that there are still some material benefits to electing more progressives to Congress and kicking out more centrists and reactionaries. And I would also like to be on the record stating that while I don't put stock in pulling Democrats to the left, I do think organizing outside of electoral politics can bring economic pressure on the system, which can force changes through, uh, which are probably easier to force through also without reactionaries and centrists at the helm. Yeah, yeah. I think both of us would like to see a, a workers' party, some sort of U.S. labor party in our lifetimes. I think that that's our only chance to actually bring an end to capitalism and establish a truly equitable system of socialism. But in the meantime, I'm okay with folks continuing this inside work, especially since this is a project that has yielded some success at the congressional level, where two years ago we saw the so-called squad assembled with the election of AOC, Rashida Tlaib, and Hilan Omar. This cycle, it looks like more lefties will be headed to Congress with Cory Bush and Jamal Bowman. Someone else looking to shock the establishment and add their name to the ranks is Adam Christensen, a progressive running for Congress in Florida's deep red 3rd Congressional District. The seat is currently held by lunatic reactionary Ted Yoho, a big fan of President Trump's, and the guy who uh, called AOC a fucking bitch on the steps of the Capitol a few months ago. Yoho is thankfully retiring, but there's another right-wing ghoul stepping up to take his seat unless Christensen can pull off a massive upset on Election Day. Christensen is running on a popular platform that includes Medicare for All, guaranteed child care for all, free college, a Green New Deal, marijuana legalization, and defunding the police. I spoke with him recently about his campaign and why he decided to run. Uh, and so I actually, I jumped in and uh, basically, you know, I was, I was complaining to a friend about what was going on and, uh, you know, what it was looking like. And they basically looked at me and they said, you know, you don't really get to complain if you're not going to do something about it. And so that was kind of, uh, you know, kind of when the light kind of switched on in my head and decided, you know, let's uh, see what we can do here. Um, and it's been an incredible nine months. Uh, we won our primary and everybody on our staff was under the age of 23. Uh, it was a completely youth-led campaign. And at the same time, um, we have been able to, you mentioned the money, we've been able to raise almost $170,000 and our average is $21 contribution. That has never happened here. And so most people typically in this race get outraised 10 to one, sometimes even more. We're only getting outraised two to one right now, which is incredible. And so we actually have the best shot, best chance that anybody's had in a very long time and on top of that, we have really been playing this and really rewriting the rule book and the playbook for how you can run in these areas. And I think it's gone very well. We're seeing a lot of movement with the polls that we have, uh, with the other things that we're seeing. And I think we've got a real shot here. I noticed your, uh, your campaign uh, slogan is uh, for the many, not just me. Um, it uh, reminds me of the labor Jeremy Corbyn slogan uh, for the many, not the few. Obviously, uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign uh, uh, was it us, not me. Um, not me, us. Yeah, I think. yeah, not me, us. Uh, I, I'm guessing you're you're very much styling your candidacy in the mold of this new progressive left wing uh, social democrat, whatever you want to call it, um, 
and and your your platform reflects that as well. I think you know what we've been able to do is take the best parts of a lot of different eras and a lot of different ideas. So number one, we almost style ourselves, especially running in this red Republican district as a, a one of the original progressive Republicans who would be like Teddy Roosevelt, uh, who went after monopolies and after price fixers and went after JP Morgan and Rockefeller and actually broke up the trusts and, you know, carried a big stick. On top of that, just like you mentioned, we have the Labor uh, Party and we have kind of, you know, the Sanders wing uh, of the Democratic Party, which has really decided that they are going to focus on people above everything else. And I think that that right there, melding and molding those two kind of traditions is exactly what is necessary at this moment, especially after 2008, especially after what just happened now with the pandemic. And it's really a combination of the idea that the people that we're going to fight for are the people in our community. It's the people around us. And we're not going to allow anybody else to come in and destroy our lives, just take from us, steal from us, whether it's resources, whether it's money, we want the money to flow into our communities instead of just being taken out. And it's the idea that greed is not good. And I think when you style a campaign based on those things, and when you make it so that every single policy that you have is for the many, not just me as the candidate, for the many, not just me as in the people on our staff, but we have a lot of people that stand up and say, what we want is for the many not just me, that's a huge, powerful movement. And so I'm very excited that we've been able to do that. And we've excited so many other people to be able to join us. And you're right, it is a combination of the Labor Party. It is a combination of what we've seen the last couple of years, but it's also old school. It is old school conservatism, which just so happens to be new school progressivism, which is actually kind of incredible that we are seeing that cycle come back. And so it's a melding that actually works very well in the rural areas because they've gotten killed by places like Walmart, Amazon for years. They're small. The small towns have gotten wiped off the face of the planet and family owned businesses have just dried up. And so when you fight for those things, you're going to get crossover. You're going to get people that realize that you actually might be technically the more traditionally conservative candidate than the person who takes corporate PAC money, than the person who is beholden to lobbyists, than that kind of thing. And it's kind of incredible because we've seen that crossover from even hard school, old school Republicans that have backed our campaign. And so it's, uh, we have not watered down any policy. That was one thing I said when we got into this, we would never water down policy. How we might uh, change optics, we might change the words we use, but we're not gonna water down policy and what we're fighting for. How has that message been able to travel um, based on who your opponent is? Uh, are they a, a fairly, uh, are they in the mold of Ted Yoho here? Are they, have they tried to move toward the center here? What, what, what's the deal with your opponent in this race? You know, at first I kind of thought that uh, it would just be a lighter version of Ted Yoho. And then we started to dig. Like my day job is actually like catching fraud and like looking through marketing and BS and trying to find the truth and like tell people what the truth is. And it turns out that she just might be about five to six times worse than Ted Yoho ever was in anything. Like wow. she made up her entire backstory to run for Congress. She made she raised five hundred thousand dollars by lying about being homeless, by lying about growing up on a cattle ranch, and by lying about being bankrupted by Obama. Like is incredible. And so we found that. And on top of that, uh, we found out that she was fired by Yoho because she didn't have any moral character. There was some sort of incident. And when she was fired, she actually was shipped back to Gainesville, Florida, was still kept on the payroll, set up her own political consulting firm, 
and was making money from Ted Yoho through her husband's lawn care co mowing company. She had three different revenue streams, was making almost $40,000 more than when she was the chief of staff for Ted Yoho. And all of that was, all the money she was receiving was from Ted Yoho. So something happened. Huh. And then she started to be receiving more money after she was fired and other benefits like getting into the Naval War College through a favor from Yoho. So something happened and we are very excited that the newspapers are going to be releasing that very shortly. But it's really incredible. It's an incredible look at the corruption and just the way that politics has been, especially in this area for a very long time. And it takes people that are unafraid to actually look at it figure out what's going on and then actually speak truth to power and share it. And I think that's something we've been able to do. And I've, it's actually been really fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sounds like uh, someone you'd be investigating if you weren't running for Congress. <laughs> yep. It's um, exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the, I guess, frustrating features of democratic party politics over the last few years, since we saw Bernie Sanders run for president back in 2016, first run in 2016 was uh, how committed the party is to neutralizing its left flank, to um, casting it out of power. Um, how how has the party reacted to your run? Uh, did uh, I don't know much about the person you defeated in the primary, if they were more of a moderate Democrat compared to you. Did you get much support from the party? Did they try to hold you back, given your more progressive Bernie-style platform? And now in the general election, what is the, their relationship into this race? I think it's been kind of interesting. So we had a wing of um, the establishment here in Gainesville that backed us fully, and it was incredible. But then there was another portion, basically the other half, that decided that they were going to go to war with us and do everything they possibly could to stop us. Uh, what was really kind of interesting and funny is, you know, they would have. If we had done the traditional way of running here, they would have been able to beat us. But we realized we would never win Alachua. We were never going to be able to defeat and, and win the number of votes we needed in Alachua to be able to defeat the establishment that was going to rise up. And what happened was we decided we were going to focus in all the rural counties. And we actually won by running up the score in the rural counties and we lost to Latras, the first time that has ever happened historically. And we were the youngest Democratic nominee ever nominated in this area or really this year nationally as well. And so two really historic things happened. What we also realized was if we were able to pull off that in the primary, we effectively were already running a general election campaign because the battlegrounds are the rural districts. And as long as you do well there, you got a shot, but nobody's ever done well there. And so we really, we focused on rewriting. When I say we rewrote the playbook, I literally mean we did things and have been doing things that nobody else has ever tried and nobody else wanted to do or put in the work to do. And it's paid off. And if it continues the way that we think it will, it will pay off even greater and we will be well, <laughs> probably the number two national headline story in the country when you knock out Ted Yoho's seat, which has been held for eight years um, against the guy who basically, you know, went and verbally assaulted AOC on the Capitol steps yeah. and you knock him out with a 26 year old progressive candidate running on an extremely progressive platform in the heart of Trump country. And if that happens, whew, that's going to be fun. Have you given any thought to if you if you win and go to Washington, how you can be an effective lawmaker um, with someone like Nancy Pelosi as the leader of the Democratic Party. Um, we've seen how AOC and the squad have 
been fairly marginalized. I mean, you know, you're, you're not even getting hearings on things like Medicare for all. The Green New Deal has been kind of brushed aside for the most part. Um, you know, we saw the, the hearings with Amy Coney Barrett and the Judiciary Committee, and you see a lot of people mad that Democrats didn't put up much of a fight um, to, to stopping those proceedings. You see Dianne Feinstein hugging Lindsey Graham at the end and everybody thanking each other. Um, just like I mentioned, when it comes to politics and running for Congress, the left has kind of been discouraged by leadership within the Democratic Party. That exists within power as well in Washington. Um, how do you... How do you do what uh, other progressive lawmakers have been unable to do, it seems like, so far in their first few years in Congress? And that is try and try and get your move your agenda forward inches even when it comes to it. Have you, have you given any thought to strategies you might employ? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that you need to be able when we talk about crossing party lines or when we talk about actually, you know, bringing people along what people kind of think and what they understand is they believe that that means they have to moderate themselves, that they have to give in, that they have to do all these sorts of things. And what you realize is if you're an actual good negotiator, you never give up things in negotiations that you ever didn't need. The problem with the Democratic Party is they are afraid to actually ask for more than what they actually want. And what every negotiator understands is when you ask for way more than you're ever going to want or need, you always have things that you are willing to give up so it appears like you are compromising. Republicans have figured this out for a lot of years. They've been very good at it where they actually, they push for things far greater than they've ever wanted. And then when they give up tiny little things, it feels like they've compromised and come to your side. And they've been able to effectively push everybody to one side versus the other. And so that's something that we have to change immediately. Uh, so when it comes to things like, well, let's, let's put it this way. If you actually wanted a public option, then you would fight for Medicare for all. Yeah. If you wanted Medicare for all, you would fight for nationalized healthcare system. Because once you give up those things, you appear to moderate yourself. And so when it comes to people like Nancy Pelosi, number one, I think she's probably gonna retire very shortly. She's gotta be, she's 80 years old and the baton has to get passed. People like Dianne Feinstein, the same thing. It's, it is time for new ideas. We cannot keep doing things the same way that we've been doing them for 40 years because Democrats have gotten killed and they have refocused themselves, focused on corporate power, focused on things that don't matter. And they have not been willing to actually put people first. And so that has to be complete reshaping of our ideas, of our, uh, our agenda, our policy, and what we are actually focused on and fighting for. And so if somebody's not willing to do that, then they need to go. And we need to push them to a point where either they leave or they come to our side. And uh, that includes playing hardball because Democrats have refused to actually stand up and fight for a very long time. And they will say all of these things. They will say, oh, well, this is the end of the world. Oh, well, this would be terrible for these many people. Oh, well, this is gonna happen if this person does this, that. But they never do anything with their actual actions that would stop those people from doing it. Instead, they stand up and they give those people hugs. And I'm sick of that. These people are, if they're going to act that way, they are not our friends and we should not treat them that way. Adam Christensen running uh, for Congress in Florida's third congressional district. Where can people to go to find out more about your campaign and get involved? Yes, the biggest things are either the website, uh, Twitter feed or the Facebook. And so it's AC for Congress 2020 or it's for the many, not just me.com. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Adam. Before we leave you today, you can hear that music, which means we need to read a haiku for a new subscriber over at Patreon. 
This is for Joe. Mama always said, be careful, you could go blind with all that tubing. <laughs> thank you, Joe. And thank you, uh, Jeffrey Tubin, for lighting things up and giving us all content for days right now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, ne never do that again, uh, to be clear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, that'll do it for the show this week. Thanks for listening. We've got a brand new Chip Chat tomorrow. We've got a brand new Means Morning News on Thursday, which if you become a subscriber to our Patreon, you get a free month to Means TV as well. So you can catch us on Thursday mornings with Means Morning News. And then we're back Friday with the Garbage Can Show. We're here in D.C., so you don't have to be.